calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Sidewalk Audio and PatioBooks.com presents The Prince of Hazel and Oak A podcast novel by John Lenahan Book 2 of the Shadow Magic series Read by the author Chapter 27 War We rode out on two mares. I wanted to stampede the herd, but Spiog thought getting out of there unnoticed was more important than making them round up horses for a couple of hours. We galloped into the night. Since we couldn't find any saddles, I rode bareback, and since all I was wearing was my stupid kelp robe thing, I really was riding bareback. Last summer, Mom had taught me the basic techniques of riding without a saddle. But on that occasion, I didn't have to hoik up a robe exposing my bare bottom to horsehair and the rest of my lower parts to a winter breeze. Spiog rode in front of me, and to be honest, I couldn't blame him. I wouldn't want to be confronted with that view for a prolonged period of time either. Kidding aside, it was a profoundly uncomfortable ride. Riding bareback is twice the work than in a saddle. I was already exhausted from being knocked out and trussed up, and my legs, as well as my nether regions, were going numb with the cold. Spiog was determined to get far away from Kielty's camp before I was discovered missing, and he wanted to reach the Hazellands as soon as possible to warn of the imminent attack. So he traveled fast and only stopped to rest the horses. I couldn't disagree with his logic, but I would have loved to have curled up in a pile of leaves for an hour or twenty. The sky was dark and overcast during our entire escape. A couple of snow squalls made it almost impossible to see our way, but then again it made us also impossible to spot. All the while I practiced my feely mind-calming chant that Fawn had once tried to teach me. I decided on repeating the mantra, Would you like fries with that burger? Over and over again until my mind and body were almost separate. Spiog said it took a full 20 hours to get out of the reedlands, but I hardly remember anything except the cold. There were two banshee guards at the border path leading to the hazellands. Spiog spotted them before they spotted us. I waited while he snuck up and dispatched them. All that could be heard was two quiet thumps. In the hazellands, we found our first clean stream. The horses drank greedily, and I fell into it face down. My robe had been getting lighter and colder the longer we had been away from water. 
After a bath, it dried and warmed itself, and me. I noticed that the slit that Kielty had cut in the fabric had healed, so I decided to give something a try. I slit the robe down the middle from my crotch to the floor and wrapped the dangling pieces of fabric around my legs and then willed the fabric to join together like trousers. It worked. My butt still hung out of the back, but it was much warmer for the rest of the trip. A day into the Hazellands, I could go on no longer. Spiog decided that we were not being followed. He caught a rabbit and risked a small fire. Do you have enough energy to tell me what has happened to you since we parted? I had dreaded that question. The feely chant had not only helped me endure the cold, it had also stopped me from remembering how badly I had failed and how many friends I had lost. Brendan's dead. I blurted, hoping that if I said it fast enough, it wouldn't hurt so much. The archer gave a deep sigh that was his only grieving that he allowed himself. And the rest? Araf is dead, too, along with a puka prince who was our guide. Essa left for the Hazellands. I don't know if she made it or not. Turlo betrayed us. I gathered that from what Kielty said. You heard our whole conversation? Most of it, he said. I had already cut a slit in the back of the tent when your uncle came in. If I had had a bow, he would be dead now. So the ewes didn't give you a bow? The ewes do not give bows, Connor. The ewes give wood for a bow, if they find you worthy. To answer my question, he held out the staff he was holding. It was, of course, you would. So the you told you you were worthy, eh? I could have told you that. They also told me something else. They said that someone has killed one of them. But I always thought a you could kill anybody before they could chop one down. That is how it has always been. Then how did they do it? I do not know, nor do I know what this means. But I do know that it does not bode well. I asked Spiog if I could have his knife to cut some roast rabbit, and he asked, Did I not see you take a knife from that brownie in the corral? I did, but I gave it back to him, I replied. Why in the land would you do that? So I told him the story about how I had first met Frank and how I had given the worried Jesse the knife that had been thrown at us on Mount Cass. That sat the old guy up. What did you say? You know, the knife with the message that was thrown at Brendan when we were up at the mountain. He shook his head. He looked confused and very concerned. Oh, yeah, I said. You were a bit out of it when it happened, and you were gone when I found the knife. So I told him the whole story about finding the message in the sheath of the knife that had led us to the Puka lands. I wanted to get some rest, but he insisted I tell him everything in detail, especially describing the knife. It was a gold-tipped throwing knife with a green glass handle with a spiral of gold embedded in it. It was almost identical to the one that Queen Rhiannon gave me. Spiag was on his feet now. Where did Rhiannon get her knife? Um, I said, not knowing what possibly could have gotten the old guy so worked up. She said my grandfather Liam gave it to her. We must go now, Spiog said, kicking out the fire and knocking my half-eaten rabbit into the dirt. What? 
I thought you said we were safe for a bit. You have had your bit. We leave now. He picked up his Eustaff and jumped on his horse before I even stood up. I struggled onto my horse. It took some hard riding, but I finally caught up with him. That didn't mean he was answering any of my questions. Whatever I had said that was making him ride at that breakneck speed was not up for discussion. I mumbled back into my McMantra, clamping my thighs to my poor, frightened, overworked mount, and zoomed into the remainder of the afternoon. As the sun got low in the sky, I started recognizing landmarks. We were at the outskirts of the Hall of Knowledge. Every bone in my body screamed for rest, and every cell of my skin screamed for a bath, but I also dreaded arriving and having to have to tell the imps that their prince was dead. I thought about how Essa would take it, and then it hit me that I wasn't sure if she had made it out of the Brownie Lands. I kicked my poor horse and bent my back into the wind. At dusk, Spiag dropped in next to me, grabbed my horse's mane, and gestured for me not to speak. We dismounted, but were spotted by a group of riders in the distance. Spiag looked around for options, cursed under his breath, and braced himself for what was to come. We were definitely underarmed. The old guy handed me a throwing knife and held his staff in readiness for a fight. I knew that the knife wasn't going to save me from being killed, but at least I would be able to take one down with me. As they drew closer, Spiag sighed with relief and then waved. I recognized one of them, a leprechaun from a training session in the Hall of Knowledge. Fortunately, they recognized us as well. Did Essa return safely? I asked, waving away all the saluting and bowing. This question confused the senior officer. I do not think so, he said. She never returned from the Brownie Lands? Oh, yes. Ages ago. I thought you meant now. Where is she now? She should be a league east of here. Is Turlo with her? Confusion once again crossed the leprechaun's face. We are seeking the Turlo. Explain, Spiag commanded. A pair of brownie swift riders arrived this morning, waited outside our embattlements, and demanded to parley with the Turlo. Turlo wanted to go alone, but Dahi insisted he bring a guard. When they met with the swift riders at the bottom of the windward knoll, the guard was killed and Turlo was taken. Spiag and I exchanged knowing looks. Are you in contact with Essa? I have a whistle, but it's only to be used in an emergency. This is that emergency, soldier, Spiag said. Blow it. Ten minutes later, we heard the thundering of hooves of a company in full gallop. Essa saw me and dismounted without even slowing her horse. She hugged me while still at a run and almost knocked me over. I thought you were dead. I allowed myself a momentary return hug before I told her my grim news. Essa spoke before I could say anything. The brownies have taken Turlow. No, Essa, they haven't. What do you mean they haven't? I saw them. She looked around. Where is Araf? Which question should I answer first? Neither was good news. Turlow hasn't been taken. He has escaped. The brownies knew that I was coming and they rode here to warn him. Essa threw her shoulders back. Warn him of what? 
Where's Araf? Where's Brendan and Tom? Dead, I said bluntly. There was no other way. Turlow betrayed us. You lie. Her eyes blazed. No, I don't. Turlow is working with Kialti. Because of his treachery, Araf, Brendan, and Tawn are dead. I barely escaped with my life. That is not true. It is true, Princess, Spiog said. Essa turned on the archer as if she had only just noticed he was there. What do you know, you crazy old hermit? You've spent the last hundred years dusting banta sticks. Then she turned on me. You never liked him. You're jealous. You're making this up. I'm not, Essa. Use your owth glass if you don't believe me. She looked like I had just slapped her in the face. She pressed her hand to her chest on top of the place where her truth-seeking glass hung from a gold chain. I will not go about interrogating people with the owth glass. Spiag stepped up to her and took her by the shoulders. For a moment, I thought she was going to squirm away. And for another moment, I thought he was going to slap her. Use the glass, princess. We are at war. We must be certain. Use the glass on us, as you should have used it on him. She looked at me. For a nanosecond, she was just a girl with pleading eyes, wishing me to say that it wasn't so. She bowed her head and removed the finger-sized crystal from around her neck. As tears welled up in her eyes, she asked, Did Turlow betray me? He did, princess, Spiag replied. He betrayed us all, I said. The crystal remained clear. Essa turned and secretly wiped her eyes as she placed the crystal back around her neck. Then she got back on her horse, raised her chin high, and shouted to her company, Mount up! We must return to the Hall of Knowledge. Prince Connor and Master Spiag bring news. And it means war. You have been listening to The Prince of Hazel and Oak, a podcast novel by John Lenahan. Music gratefully provided by Lunasa. You can hear more of their fabulous music at www.lunasa.ie. That's L-U-N-A-S-A dot I-E. You can learn more about Shadow Magic and its author on www.shadowmagic.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening. Shadow Magic, book one of the series, is available from HarperCollins in paperback, EPUB, and Kindle formats.